Many of you have probably seen the picture that I have in mind. It has circulated around on the Internet in recent years quite a lot. Uh, it's a picture of a dead possum smashed flat on the road, which is not an unusual sight, obviously. Possums are notorious for being run over on the road. But in this particular picture, you see this possum smashed out on the road, but then you see a yellow stripe painted right over the dead possum. Obviously, the road painting crew had come along after the possum had been killed on the road, and they just went right over the possum. They just painted the yellow stripe right over the possum. And the caption at the bottom of the picture says, it's not my job. <laughs> the, the, the guy on the painting crew wasn't about to get out of the truck and move that possum. It's not, that, that's not my job. I'm the, I'm the road, I'm the, the line painter on the road. You know, I don't, my job not to clean up dead possum. It's not my job. Now, I, th I think that's really a, a clever illustration of a mindset that a lot of people have. A lot of people in the workplace, you know, they don't intend to do anything more than they have to do. And if it's not their job, if they don't feel it's their personal responsibility, they're simply not going to do it. I want to tell you, uh, businesses feel, fail, businesses fail every day because too many workers have that mindset. They're not going to do it if it's not specifically assigned to them. And, and if you were running a business, you would not want employees who had that outlook on things. But I think when we consider the work we do together as a local congregation of God's people, we could fail too if we allowed ourselves to develop the mindset, it's not my job, I'm not doing it. I, I just want to do the bare minimum. I only want to get by with the very least that I have to do. Uh, too many people, too many Christians in local churches fail to recognize and fulfill their personal responsibilities to the Lord. Along those lines, this last week, many of you know this last week, I was in a gospel meeting up in Vermont, and the brethren up there had asked me to preach along that theme, the individual and his responsibilities to the local congregation. When they asked me about that, I, I was glad to comply, and it was the case that I had a series of lessons that you all may remember from a while back that I preached along those lines. And so that was the series of lessons that I taught up in Vermont this past week. It, they were not the lessons that I might typically have selected for a gospel meeting sort of effort, but that's what they asked for, and so that's what we did. They asked me to do one lesson that I, I had not included in a in the previous series, they asked me to do a lesson about conflict resolution in the local church and that every Christian needs to feel a burden to resolve any problems that arise within the local congregation. So they, uh, among the lessons they wanted, that was one, and I didn't have a lesson along those lines, and so I put it together for that, for that series in Vermont, and I thought I'd share it with you this morning because I do think the idea of conflict resolution and my responsibility as a member in the local church and your responsibility as a member. Uh, it is our business to make sure that any problem that comes up in, in the congregation is resolved. And so we want to talk about some of the guidelines that are set forth in the Word of God toward resolving conflicts that might happen. Before we get into that, let's stop here for just a minute and say thank you uh, for being present on this beautiful Lord's Day in Middle Tennessee. We're glad that you're here. We're glad, we're glad that you have a, a desire to serve and worship God that brings you out this morning. There are a lot of people in our community who are not engaged in religious uh, actions today. They're out, maybe they're out fishing, sleeping in late, uh, doing some other recreational kind of pursuit. 
you gave of your time and energies to be present this morning. We commend you for that and we're encouraged by it. Thanks for coming. We're glad to see you. And for those of you who are visiting with us, we're especially grateful that you've come and want you to come back every time that you have a chance. All right. What about conflict resolution as a duty, as a responsibility that each of us have in a local congregation? Is that just, are we just wasting our time to talk about such a thing? Conflict resolution? Why would we need to talk about that? Uh, is there, you know, uh, someone who says, I don't see the importance of that might be suggesting, well, we don't really need to talk about it because conflict never comes up. Anybody who would say that, of course, is being very unrealistic. Conflicts do come up. Uh, every church must deal with conflict from time to time. The reason being, of course, is because local churches are made up of people and personalities. And when people and personalities get together, there's always the potential uh, for disagreements and for disputes that might have to be resolved. And so, yes, it's, it's, a, it's a worthy topic, and it's a biblical topic. And we'll see that there are certainly guidelines set forth in the work of God. But we could just point out that there were, there were troubles in those first century churches that we read about in the New Testament. Even the very first church in Jerusalem had, had conflict that had to be solved. Uh, individuals had conflict. Even uh, Paul and Barnabas, two great and strong Christians who were, worked together closely. A, a situation developed between the two of them that they decided, well, we'll just go different directions. We'll work in different fields. They, I, don't, I don't think they had a, a falling out that caused them to uh, no longer fellowship one another, but they just decided the, the contention, it says, was strong, and they decided they'd go in different di directions and work in different geographical places problems come up. And so certainly conflict resolution is a necessary thing for us to consider. What's, what are some guidelines that we could suggest from the scripture? First of all, I think as a, as a baseline, we need to establish that truth can never be compromised. Uh, everybody has to be committed to this principle. We cannot compromise truth in order, you know, we got trouble and the only way we're going to solve this problem is if we sort of uh, compromise on matters of doctrine. No, never. There's certainly way too much compromise in religion. And even I'm sad to say, I think even among uh, some of our own brethren, we've seen too much of a spirit of compromise. When you start compromising something, where do you stop? If, if we're allowed to start compromising on one point, who could stop at the next point? For instance, uh, uh, let's say, uh, you know, there's Monty in the back. You know, he's, a, he's, he's quite a uh, gunsmith, and he's a he's a shooter, and he builds guns, and he shoots guns. He even shoots guns in competition, uh, muzzle loaders. And so Monty says, you know, I have a particular talent in shooting muzzle loading rifles, and I would like to bring that in to the services next Sunday. You know, uh, sort of have an exhibition. It's a talent, Monty says. It's a talent I possess, and I sort of want to give an exhibition of my muzzle loader shooting skills. As a, as a part of the worship next Sunday. Everybody says, oh boy. Well, you know, that doesn't, I, don't, I don't go for that very much, but I sure don't want to make Monty mad, and so we're just going to have to give in and let Monty bring, bring in, do, do some shooting, you know, uh, during services next Sunday. Well, now wait just a minute. If you're going to let Monty have his muzzle, shoot, muzzle loader shooting next Sunday, I, I got a few things I'd like to do too, you know. Uh, I don't have great talents, but I got a few things that I'd like to do as well, you know. Uh, I like to eat chocolate cake. <laughs> you know, and I, and I have quite a skill at that. I'm pretty good at consuming chocolate cakes. 
how about letting me bring chocolate cake and use it for the Lord's Supper? You know, if Monty can shoot his muzzleloader, why can't I have my chocolate cake on the, on the Lord's table? Obviously, obviously, we're just being ridiculous here, but you get the point. If you were to yield on one thing, how could you say no to the next thing? And unfortunately, that's the way the religious world has gone. I'm concerned that some of our own brethren are following in their path. We cannot compromise truth. Uh, a more practical, biblical example of no compromise comes from the Apostle Paul himself. In Galatians chapter 2, you know this story. In Galatians 2, Paul is retelling what happened, and we read about it in Acts 15. In Acts 15, there was a meeting in Jerusalem. Some, some false teaching was emanating out of Jerusalem. Certain ones from Jerusalem were going around saying, Gentile converts to Christianity must be circumcised. And they were, causing, they were causing a big problem about it. And so Paul and some others went to Jerusalem to, to basically put an end to that, to, to, to stop that false teaching that was coming out of Jerusalem. When he got to Jerusalem, one of the fellows who went with him was Titus. Titus was not a Jew, and he had not been circumcised. And some of them tried to force that issue. Uh, in regards to Titus specifically. And in Galatians chapter 2, beginning verse 3, Paul says, But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised, and that because of false brethren, unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Notice that last expression in particular. Paul said, We gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Paul said, absolutely not. Someone said, come on, Paul. Come on, Paul. Give in a little bit here. Yield a little bit. You know, we want, if we want to maintain peace, you're going to have to, you should take Titus and have him circumcised just to keep these people happy. Paul said, no, not for a moment, not for an hour. And that needs to be our attitude. So, when it comes to conflict, if, if the conflict is based upon some doctrinal thing, we can't compromise truth, not ever, not at all. Truth can never be compromised for the sake of resolving conflict, all right? That's, that's first consideration. Now, once we've got that in place, I want, I want you to understand that everything else we're going to say is based upon that as a, a absolute established given it can't be altered. But having said that, then I think we should add that all of us need to be firmly committed to maintaining peace. Now, no compromise, but peace needs to be a priority with us also. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, it says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. Endeavoring is a word that certainly suggests to us that you have to put forth effort in order to do that. Some newer English translations say, making every effort to keep the unity. Make, another says, being diligent to preserve the unity. Another says, eager to maintain unity. And all of those uh, translations suggest the same thing, that it needs to be important to us to have peace in the local congregation. And we personally, now remember the idea of this all, this whole lesson is, is the idea of my personal responsibility. I have to endeavor to keep peace. You have to. It should be important to us all and each one of us should feel a sense of responsibility to make sure it happens. In the text that Cole read for us earlier from Genesis chapter 13, we recently studied about the life of the Apostle Paul um, and uh, 
the life of uh, Abraham. I don't know why I said Paul. We just recently studied about the life of Abraham in our Wednesday night class. And in the case of Abraham, you remember that episode? We even talked about it. When Abraham and Lot had grown prosperous, uh, their flocks and their herds had increased to the point that their shepherds and herdsmen were sort of arguing and fighting and contending with each other. And here in Genesis chapter 13, verse 8, Abram said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdsmen and thy herdsmen, for we be brethren. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If thou depart to the right hand, I will go to the left. We, we admire Abraham for, the, for his commitment to maintaining a good relationship with his nephew Lot. Abraham was the uncle. Lot was his nephew. And yet, Abraham was willing to personally sacrifice. Abraham should have said, I get to say where I'm going, and you'll have to take second choice. But he didn't. He even said to Lot, you can make the first choice. I'll, I'll take whatever's left over, because it's so important that we not have trouble. We be brethren. That's the attitude that we need to, to possess. Um, sometimes I'm dumbfounded to, to see the troubles and and strife and contentions that come up in, in churches. Uh, uh, and you just made to ask, where's this sense of loyalty that Abraham had? We be brethren. Where's the sense of love that Abraham suggested that existed there? Some people, unfortunately, are ready to fight at the slightest provocation. And when you hear about that, maybe you've heard of some congregation where there's been huge, big trouble, and somebody tries to passionately describe to you what was going on there, but you, sort of detached from the, the situation, can say, what? You split the church over that? Because often when you hear those stories about churches that just split wide open, it, it, it was really about some really insignificant, trivial thing. It certainly wasn't doctrinal. Now, we already said you can't compromise doctrine. But so often, churches have trouble and even end up dividing apart over things that don't matter at all. And it seems clear that the folks there we're not committed to maintaining peace. And people in those congregations don't see the responsibility to work hard at maintaining peace. So we need to be firmly committed to maintaining peace. Now, in doing that, I would suggest that we have to take the time to communicate. We're not going to solve problems. Conflicts will not be resolved if we don't take time to communicate with one another. I remember... A number of years ago, and not here at College View at another place, we had a brother who all of a sudden uh, let us know that he was very upset and he was fixing to leave, he said. He was preparing to leave the congregation. Well, I went to him and I asked him, what, what's going on? I said, Brother Glenn, what, what's the problem? He says, well, I've been mad. I've, I've been angry at you for the last two years. I, I, was, I was blown away by it. He was mad at me. been mad at me, he said, for two years. I said, what were you mad about? He said, well, two years ago, when you preached that sermon, and you said that if children ever leave the faith later in life, it's always the parents' fault. I said, Glenn, I said, why didn't you come and ask me about that? I said, because I didn't teach that. I know I didn't teach it because I have never believed that. I, I couldn't have possibly have taught that because I never even have held that view, ever. So, you misunderstood something I said. Now, I, I, I admit that sometimes I maybe don't express myself clearly, or I might not have stated it in understandable terms, 
But you know what, Glenn? You've been mad at me for two years. If you'd have come to me, we could have resolved that in 30 seconds. Why didn't you come and talk to me instead of carrying this with you for two years? And he's mad. He's leaving over something that wasn't even real. Now, uh, what I, I'm using that story to illustrate this principle. If we would just communicate with one another, very often we can resolve things quickly. Many imagined problems are just simply misunderstandings that can be cleared up quickly. Uh, but not if I assume the worst and immediately uh, get myself into combat mode, you know. I'm ready to fight. No. Take the time to communicate. We have to do that. Now, you know how this works. We've, we've illustrated this lots of times from the teachings of Jesus. Two sides. There's always two sides to a problem, right? There's always at least two sides to every problem. And Jesus talks about both aspects of a potential problem. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, beginning verse 23, he said, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, go thy way, first be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. So in this scenario of Matthew chapter 5, I'm the one who's done something wrong. But before I try to worship God, Jesus said, go work it out with your brother. So I am the offending party. And Jesus said, I have a duty to go to the one I, that I wronged. Okay? Now, the other side of that potential scenario is described in a passage like Matthew 18, 15. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. Now, this is talking about from the other side. Let's say it's Dan. Dan is the one. I, I'm the offending party, and, 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 and Dan is the one that I've wronged. I'm supposed to be going to Dan. But this verse says Dan's supposed to be coming to me. If we're both doing our job, what's going to happen? We're going to meet somewhere in between Dan's house and my house. We're going to meet up and we're going to solve our problem. But we have to be willing to do that. We have to take the time to communicate that. Uh, and, and that's so important. And I, I think we really have to stress that. We also need, as, as things come up, as potential trouble arises, and as we said earlier, it's going to happen. We know that. We're not trying to, I mean, we've got to be realistic about it. There will be issues to work through. When there are such issues, we need to, we need to approach those problems uh, with the basic assumption that our brethren are honest souls who are trying to do right. If you were going to say that in another way, you would just say, give your brothers the benefit of the doubt. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Uh, we disagree, you know, but I'm going to assume that he's a good person and he really wants to do what's right. He's really committed to doing the will of God. We may disagree on this, but I regard him as, a, as an honest person and a devoted uh, Christian, and, and, and I'm going to approach him that way. Instead of this, you know, the right attitude is I, I, I believe he's honest and he's really trying to do what's right. The, the opposite of that would be that guy's a scoundrel. I, I, I want to tell you, I, I've always had my doubts about him. I'm not surprised he'd pull a trick like this. I always suspected that of a guy like him. You, know? you see the difference in that basic attitude? Now, which one of those two attitudes is the most likely to produce a positive result? I think you know, don't you? It's this one. You've got to approach your brethren as honest, uh, even though you may disagree over a point. You, you approach them as an honest person trying to do what is right. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning verse 4, we have that famous text that talks about love. I've got the King James Version here on this chart. 
it uses the word charity, but you understand it's synonymous with love. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. There is so much in that text about love that demands this basic attitude of giving my brethren the benefit of the doubt. But I especially think maybe the, uh, these last... I thought I had them highlighted, and I guess I don't. I especially think these... Let me go back to that. I especially think these last four things are things that pertain to our topic this morning. Love beareth all things. I will take the burden. I will make it my responsibility to see to it that this is right. I believe all things. I think that's that, this idea. I'm not, I'm not going to assume the worst. I'm going to assume the best about my brother. I'm going to hope for all things. You know, somebody says, oh, I didn't know you were talking to that guy. wouldn't do any good if you did. He's just such a hard head. You couldn't make any progress with him if you tried. No, I'm going to hope for the best. I'm going to hope that this can be resolved. I'm going to endure all things. I'm going to stick with this until it gets right. right? Uh, so those last four expressions, this is a whole paragraph beautifully describing the characteristics of true love. But these last ones, I think, these last four characteristics, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things, those, I believe, especially uh, address this idea of being willing to resolve our conflicts with the basic attitude toward my brother that I differ with. He's an honest man. He's trying to do what's right. We have a disagreement. But I'm going to approach him, though, as though he's, a, he's got a good and honest heart. We need to do that. We need to give one another the benefit of the doubt when issues arise. We need to realize that no one has all the best answers. And when I say realize that no one has all the best answers, that no one, that means me too, right? No one has the, all the right answers. I don't have all the right answers. We need to be humble enough to acknowledge that uh, others have ideas that may count too. Now, remember, of course, that we're not talking about doctrinal things. We already said concerning doctrine we can't compromise. But, but there are a lot of things that demand our judgment, things that are authorized in general that demand our judgment into putting into practice. We've talked about general and specific authority, but in matters of general authority, we have to be willing to, we, we have to make judgments and we have to be willing to work together in those things. Now, so I've got to realize the other guy can have a good idea and his idea may be different than mine. You know, just as a simple illustration, what color are we going to paint the walls? I have an idea about that. Now, obviously, I like my idea and I think that my idea is good. If I didn't, I develop a different idea, right? Obviously, I think I have a good idea. Everybody thinks their ideas are good, right? But if it's a matter of judgment, I don't have to have my way. And maybe the other guy has a better idea than I do. And in humility, I have to acknowledge that I'm not the only one who has ideas and others may be better than my own. So again, we're not talking about matters of truth and righteousness, of doctrine. But in matters of judgment, we have to be willing to uh, submit to one another. In 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning verse 5, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, unto the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. I think this is an important principle. and It applies to areas of judgment. 
And in those areas, I have to say, let me hear your idea. You might, you might be thinking about it in a better way than I am. We need to seek the input of other faithful Christians. Uh, sometimes we get so close to a problem. It's, it's sort of that old expression, you can't see the forest for the trees. You get so close to a situation you can't see clearly. And sometimes it's really helpful to get the opinion from someone who can see something more objectively, who's not so closely attached to a problem that, that I'm involved in, for instance. Uh, right here in our own local congregation, there, there are a number of people who could supply us with good counsel. And it may be that we know faithful Christians in, uh, off somewhere else that we might be able to consult with. Now, in saying this, I want to point out that I am not talking about gossip. Gossip is a sin, right? And if I'm just talking about a problem to others just to keep the thing stirred up, gossip is, gospel has no, uh, gossip has no benefit to it. Gossip tears down rather than builds up. And so if I'm just talking about something just to sort of keep the pot stirred, just to keep it, keep things worked up, then I'm sinning in that. And, and we're not condoning that. We're not suggesting that. But helpful counsel is encouraged throughout the scriptures. For instance, in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 14, it says, Where no counsel is, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there's safety. I need, maybe I need to ask somebody. Maybe I'm so close to this problem, I can't see it clearly. Maybe I need to ask somebody else whose judgment I respect who can help me get a clearer picture of this matter. In Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15, it says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he that hearkeneth unto counsel is wise. It's a wise man who's able to say, help me out here. Tell me what you think about this and and get help in resolving the problem. And then, finally, let me suggest to you, if we're going to understand that we have a responsibility in the local church to see to it that problems that come up are worked out. In other words, problems that come come up are resolved. One of the things I've got to do is I've got to resist the temptation to become bitter or resentful. Trouble is never a pleasant thing in any realm. But i got to tell you, church trouble in particular is just awful. I've been known to say in the past, there's no trouble like church trouble, and I think that's true. It's an awful thing when there's trouble in the church. It's never pleasant. But even though it's, that's the case, it never justifies us to grow bitter or resentful, to harbor a grudge or ill feelings toward a brother or sister in Christ. I saw a quote along these lines. I thought it was pretty appropriate. Holding on to anger is like grasping a hot coal with the intent of throwing it at someone else. You are the one who gets burned. I think that's exactly right. Uh, the Word of God warns us about this. James chapter 5, verse 9, Grudge not one against another, uh, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold the judge standing before the door. Notice, grudge not. If you do, you will be condemned. The judge stands at the door. You will be judged. If you harbor grudges against others, you will be judged for that. Instead, we ought to have the attitude expressed in Ephesians 4, beginning verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. When we realize all that we've been forgiven of, we need to have a forgiving spirit. We certainly shouldn't harbor grudges and resentment and ill feeling and bitterness toward our brethren. Well, what do you think about that? Now, I think these are some biblical principles that apply to the idea of conflict resolution in the church. 
they are they are biblical principles that we can put into specific practice. And if we will, I think we'll be better. We'll be better off uh, as a church, as a congregation. I wanted to do one other exercise. Well, you know, I left my Bible down here. Let me get it real quick. I wanted to do one other exercise with you in regards to how that works out. And I, I'd like to call your attention to two New Testament churches. Uh, churches, one of them had lots of trouble. If I ask you, from your study of the New Testament, and, and identifying a church with lots of internal issues, what one would you name? You would mention Corinth, wouldn't you? Is that what you said, Arthur? Corinth, Corinth was a church full of trouble. Look in 1 Corinthians uh, at all the conflict that existed there. And, and even Paul had heard about it. He had heard from the house of Chloe that there was trouble at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, he says, I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no contentions or divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. In other words, this thing had been widely reported. There was trouble at Corinth. Paul wasn't even there. And he was hearing about the trouble at Corinth. Over in chapter 3, he said, uh, For ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? So the church at Corinth had all kinds of trouble. We know some of it. Chapter 5, he mentions that immoral brother that they wouldn't withdraw themselves from. They just allowed it to go on and on. Chapter 6, they were bringing lawsuits against each other before civil authorities. Chapter 11, uh, they couldn't even take the Lord's Supper together without fighting and feuding about the observance of the Lord's Supper. Chapters 12 through 14, a long discourse where Paul uh, condemns them for arguing about the exercise of spiritual gifts in the church. Just trouble, all kinds of trouble at Corinth. As a result of that, there's nothing said in the epistle about anything good that the church was at Corinth was able to accomplish. They just were torn up with trouble. And all of their problems were internalized, and they were bickering and fighting and feuding with one another. They weren't getting any good positive things done. Corinth is a, is a negative example to us. Don't be like Corinth in regard to dealing with trouble. As a contrast to them, I would suggest to you the church at Thessalonica. The church at Thessalonica was, uh, they were doing well. And they were a church where they were at peace. I think Thessalonica was one of the good congregations of that era. Notice in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9, Paul says, As touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you. For ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed ye do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that you increase more and more. Paul said, I really don't even need to talk to you all about brotherly love because you have a track record, a good reputation of a church where love exists. He says, I would just urge you to keep increasing in that. You know, and, that, and that's a good point. We, we've never reached a level where we've done enough and we don't have to work at it anymore. Paul said, you all done well in regard to brotherly love. Keep it up. Do more. Now, since that church was at peace and they loved one another and they were working in harmony, what had happened? Look in the first chapter, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 7. He says, You were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. This church had been doing some really good positive work, hadn't they? 
They, they'd really been effective in getting the, the gospel message out. They had accomplished much. And uh, you have to believe that the reason they could was because they were at peace internally and they loved one another properly. And so they could do good. What's the church at College View? What would we be like? Would we be more like a Corinth or more like a Thessalonica? Well, I certainly pray that we'd be more like a Thessalonica. And that we love one another, we show that love. And one of the ways that we show that love is that we fulfill our own personal responsibilities to see to it that any potential problem that comes up is quickly resolved based upon the principles of the Word of God. Thanks for your good attention to what we've had to say. We're going to end our lesson with a song of encouragement. This is not the type of lesson that teaches what you must do to be saved or for that matter necessarily motivates one to do those necessary things. But we would not end without giving you an opportunity. If you're not a Christian, you desire to obey that gospel plan of salvation. Hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. If you're ready to obey, we're ready to assist you. If you want more study, say a word. We'd be anxious to sit down and study with you so that you can learn what one must do to be saved. If you're a Christian already, but you've fallen away, we urge you to come back in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help, let us know while we sing this song. Let the light that is on my beginning, our Lord.